that's no moon. It's a space station. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. You might notice that Aaron and I are back together in person. He's in town for the holidays, so this is really uh, weird. It's always weird being next yeah. to you again. Like the good old days. Right, but it's fun. It's fun. We've been catching up, and mm -hmm. uh, he's been helping me with all the tech issues on the computer that I can never figure <laughs> out. <laughs> so um, I'm like the yeah. Trinity Truth IT guy. You know? Definitely. I don't know what I'd do without you. So... Um, just a reminder, guys, you know, tickets are still available for our conference. And one of the presenters at the conference next year is Jerry Wills. And we'll get into his story in a moment. But if you're interested in purchasing a ticket, all that information is available below at rebelsofdisclosure.com. Uh, there's the four-day passes, single-day passes, live stream passes, there's meal plans, there's lots of options. And we hope to see you out there. So we're really excited about that. And if you're looking to try a new CBD, the 15% promo code is about to run out after the first of the year. JTT New gets you 15% off all of their CBD products. And as you know, I, I promote these things every week and I believe in them. And, you know, we wouldn't be affiliated with Hopewell Farm if we didn't believe in their products. It's truly the best, in my opinion. So take advantage of that discount. That link is below also. But we are joined by Jerry Wills today. And this is one of the most fascinating stories you know i don't know if you all are familiar with his testimony um but there are a number of people who i don't know if even you're familiar jerry of there's other whistleblowers now that have come forward claiming that they've also been dropped off by ets as infants and it's just this theme that's coming forward and i know we have the the documents from the aztec ufo crash to talk mm -hmm. about infants being in that uh, wreckage so you have quite the story to tell, and I'm, I'm excited to get into that. So for our audience that doesn't know, you know, maybe we could just kind of go through that whole journey, but welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I really feel it's a privilege to be here with you, too. Yeah. Same. Thank you. Likewise. We're honored. Likewise. So I know you didn't really learn about all of this until, you know, maybe later in your life about what actually happened and how you came to be here on this planet and what that looked like. So can you share that story with our audience, please? Well, you know, basically in the very beginnings of the story, I had memories for as long as I can remember um, being very young. And I, I don't know where these memories came from, really, um, except maybe it was something that occurred. But essentially, I remembered um well i remembered going along going over treetops uh and just a baby and the woman holding me was singing to me in some language that i didn't really understand i don't understand now at least but maybe i did then and the next memory is uh being in a building it was cold and uh day turned to night and then, you know, it was just worse and worse, colder and colder. And then uh, these men coming to get me. And then the next thing I remember was being in a hospital somewhere. Um, then as I got older, it was 
it was really obvious to me once I was hanging around people, <laughs> you know, that uh, the things that I was experiencing had no relationship to them at all. You know, things like knowing the future or seeing energy around things, um, knowing things that there's really, it was impossible for me to know. You know, in other words, picking up something or touching a picture and just getting all this movie reel in my mind of what was involved with these items uh, later in life uh, as, as a young teenager. Uh, my uncle you know there's always a black sheep in every family and it was my uncle harry you know he he would talk to me no one else wanted to hear about it i was always told just to be quiet don't talk about it so on and uh he ended up asking you know who's going to win the kentucky derby who's going to win this fight match that fight match who's going to win this this basketball it was in kentucky so basketball's big there mm -hmm. and he he Apparently he uh, did quite well because he kept asking me, you know, for quite a while in my youth. And uh, he ended up buying a nice house and having a nice car and all the accoutrements that a person would want. But it was in the mix of this when I was about 12 and a half years old. And as I said, I grew up back in the hills of Kentucky that I was out stacking a terrifically large pile of wood that had been split it was really big and uh i was told to get out there and do it and um by this time my uh my father had died when i was seven i mean there's a whole chapter that i left out there about that and everything that went on with him that was pretty strange as well but uh, mother had remarried, <clears throat> and so he wasn't very nice, uh, cruel, actually. And so I was out there in the cold stacking this wood. Well, I was very sensitive to the cold. I didn't know later, until later in life, that I had been frostbit over most of my body, so cold actually caused a lot of pain. And I was out there stacking up this wood, and it was... Um, I don't know, late October, early November, when, uh, you know, that, that periwinkle time of day where there's not much light, but it isn't dark. A large field in front of me, just, you know, flat grass where they had harvested it, hadn't grown back yet. Then there's a stand of pine trees, probably 1,500 feet from me. And over the top of this, um, these pine trees, because we lived on top of a hill, this object came from my right and kind of came up into view and went right over the top of the pine trees. Well, the tops of the pine trees were just sort of moving back and forth, like there was a wind affecting them, but there was no wind uh, like that. There was a good breeze from my left, but no wind that would affect those trees like that. And this object was probably a few hundred feet long. You know, I really couldn't tell you. Uh, I'd have to guess and say maybe a couple hundred feet long. Uh, at arm's length, it was about uh, twice the thickness um, 
well, about the thickness of two quarters in friend and just silvery. There was a moon that was out and the moon was glinting off of this thing. There were these uh, large round spots on it that were a pastel color and they would go from left to right very, very slowly. And once they get to the right, then they'd pulse back to the left again. Uh, pastel colors of, of uh, green and yellow and white and kind of pink. And they were about 80% of the thickness of this thing, as far as how big they appeared on the side of it. It's quite, you know, quite large lights. So I thought, holy mackerel. You know, that's a UFO. So I was just going to jump the fence, go run over there to it. And I got close to the fence and there was this voice in my head that said, no, don't come over here right now. Uh, we'll be back and talk to you later. I thought that was unique. So I decided I'd go back and just watch it. And as I did, it slowly moved off to the left. And then it disappeared. Like I say, we're on a hill, so we just followed the contour of the hill going down and went out of sight. Um, <clears throat> so from that point forward, I, and I thought that was really quite a remarkable thing that I saw. From that point forward, um, it would be the next summer um, after, well, I guess I had, I had turned 13 actually by that time. And that's when I met this man down in the woods. He said his name was Zoe. And uh, the reason why I was even down there, a friend of mine, his name was Randy. He and I were supposed to meet up way back in the hollers. We're going to look for an old Civil War um, gravesite. You know, 13 years old, that sort of thing sounds pretty awesome. So, right, right. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what we're going to do. And I, I went, you know, quite a ways back there. Finally, I got tired. I, I got to where I was pretty sure I was supposed to meet him. And I sat down uh, with my back against a tree and just rested. And, you know, in Kentucky, where are you guys at? In um, St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri area. So, yeah, just a bit north of where I was. Mm -hmm. So, you know how it is in the summer. It's just hot, steamy. Yep. Um. I basically had on uh, some army combat boots and uh, cutoffs and a sleeveless uh, T-shirt. And just, it was just really hot. Uh, I was very sweaty, really tired, kind of thirsty. And I heard crunching in the uh, underbrush. So I just thought, I'll just sit here and act like I'm asleep. And Randy will come up and say, hey, what are you doing? Well, I acted like I was asleep, and the next thing you know, the steps got closer to me and stopped. Nothing was said, so I opened my eyes and looked up, and here's this guy standing there I'd never seen before. This guy was probably about six, six two, somewhere. He was pretty tall. I wasn't that tall yet, and uh, dressed in a one-piece now we would call it like a spandex bodysuit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
where the pants actually went right down into boots, I guess, or shoes, you know, close to his, his uh, wrist, you know, to his hand. It was just all one piece. It didn't bunch. It moved very smoothly. There wasn't any, any wrinkles or anything. It was kind of a tan color. And when I saw him, I was a bit surprised. So in my usual way, I just said, Hey, how you doing? What are you doing down here in the woods? And he said, hello, Jerry. I decided I'm here to see you. And he said, do you mind if I sit down? And I said, no, go right ahead. You know, it's, it's okay. So he sat down, we started talking. Uh, he told me about the thing that I had seen, that it was him and the people of, of his, you know, his kind, I guess. And, um, then the oddest thing happened instead of being something where we were talking with words, it was just in our, in my head, I could hear him in my head and he could hear my answers and the conversation picked up quite briskly after the, after that. So any about 30 minutes of time, he said, well, he had to go, but he'd see me again if, if it was all right with me, but I thought, I'm sure it'd be fine. Um, so he got up and I asked him, how did you get here? And he said, well, the thing that you saw, I have a smaller version of it, much smaller. And so I wanted to see it. And he said, no, you can't follow me. You have to stay here. Uh, but I will see you again soon. And he told me the dynamics really of how he would let me know when he wanted to meet up with me. And it was in my head at that point, sounded like high-speed Morse code. And he said, when you hear that, you'll know where to go. And you'll know that we're waiting to see you. Well, that's how that multi-year series of uh, contacts went. During that time, <clears throat> there were, you know, visits really maybe once a week once every couple of weeks sometimes a couple of times a week and during these visits um i would hear it the noise the sound and it'd always be in the middle of the night well where we lived in the middle of nowhere <laughs> um you, you know, if you had to go to the bathroom, just get up, go outside, go to the outhouse. So there's no indoor plumbing. So that was not an unusual thing to get up and go out of the house and no one paid any attention to it. So I, I got up and then I took off and I knew where to go. I went back into a, a backfield, turned right. There's another large field there. And then there was a place and they always sort of landed right in there. And I would meet up with Zoe, and predominantly it was him, but occasionally there'd be one other person. I never saw more than three of them at once in the same time. And during that period of time, um, they wanted to teach me things. They wanted to um, give me an education on their terms. And the education was delivered in the same method as the conversations were. It was all telepathic. It's difficult for people to understand when you've never experienced it, but the amount of time I'm taking to tell you this story could have been done in 
just okay. mere moments, right? You know, telepathically, right. because you don't just hear the words; you get the emotions and you get the vision. You know, the, um, you know, the, whatever the. It's a whole download. It's a whole download, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, <clears throat> so I was shown things and told things, and um, where it got to where I started questioning the authenticity of my birth here. That occurred when my stepdad was having an all-out battle with my mom, and I took off running. And of course, I sent the message to Zoe, and because I was really freaked out. I mean, this wasn't just yelling; this was slapping, punching. It was pretty ugly. I took off running, and I went way the hell back into the woods. Went back to this far distant field, and by the time I got back there, running. And that's pretty fast. He was already there. So he consoled me and told me that um, it's unfortunate that this was going on. And if I wanted to come home, that I could. And I didn't really know what that meant. He had shown me these other worlds, you know, both telepathically, but also on the equipment inside the ship. And <clears throat> that's when he told me that he says, you you were adopted you're not from here we brought you here and you know the situation it probably isn't that good for you and if you want to come home then we can take you home well that freaked me out because yeah. adopted well what the hell so i declined said the offer is open I declined. I felt better. And I was worried about my mom getting beat up. So I ran all the way back. The argument was over. He was gone. And um, so she wanted to know where I'd gone off to. I just told her I went down into the woods. I told her other times what was happening. And she would just forbade me to talk to these people. And she just got white as a ghost when she heard that I was talking to people from UFOs. <laughs> I can imagine. Is it it's like she knew something, but she never, ever mentioned it to me. Well, um, I told her that I had met with them, and they said that I was adopted, and so she flipped the hell out. And she goes into a box, pulls the box from under the bed. She's rifling through these things, pulls out my birth certificate. says, this is your birth certificate. This means that you're my son. You're not adopted. Well, I don't know a birth certificate from, a, you know, anything else. Right. I looked at it. I didn't know what I was looking at. Handed it back to her. I said, oh, okay, okay. She says, you know, I told you not to talk to those people. That could be dangerous. So that all just sort of went by the wayside. The uh, contacts continued on for a number of years. I left home about 18, and when um, the contacts drew to a close, they told me that I was now, because they taught me all this information. I didn't, I went through high school. That's as far as I went. Um, and it was such a stupid educational system. I had taught myself a lot more, and these other folks had taught me a lot more as well. So I was quite the outcast in school, especially in the educational aspect of it. But they told me to go out into the world 
and live like everyone else does out there in the world. Just be yourself and learn how to live on this world. Well, you know, on the surface, that sounds like, yeah, okay, maybe so. It's everybody else seems to be doing it, had no concept. So uh, I did. And the context therefore ended, but I was always told if you need us, you can reach out to us the same way you always have, and we'll be there for you. Just don't call us unless there's a real need for that. So I went out into the world. Uh, by this time, and I'm leaving, you know, tons of details out, of course, but by this time I had uh, developed the psychic abilities. They were rather profound. Uh, the healing aspect of, of this was also, you know, pretty spot on every time, helped a few people, and then it got around that there's something strange about that boy. So I had to be quiet about that. Got into relationships. None of these women wanted to know anything about it. They didn't think UFOs were a thing anyhow. If I was trying to impress them with this kind of nonsense, I'm making the wrong move. <laughs> it's like, well, I wasn't trying to impress you. I just thought you want to know about me. That's what I thought to myself. Mm -hmm. So I just learned to be very damn quiet about it. Fast forward uh, to 28 years old, 27, 28 years old. Um, I'm in Phoenix. And I get a message from Zoe, a very vivid dream, actually, uh, showing me taking a journey from Phoenix to Reno, Nevada. And I was supposed to take this journey because somewhere along that journey, they were going to meet up. Something was going to happen. Well, you can imagine when you're, you know, it'd be nice if you had two nickels to rub together. There's, you know, one nickel, your thumb just gets a callus. So I didn't know how that was ever going to happen. I was struggling. Well, lo and behold, uh, this one fellow that I'd been uh, doing some uh, work for, he's going to Reno. He's a hypnotherapist. And of course, my background's in electronics and engineering. Uh, a lot of it from um, what they taught me, but a lot of it from what the government taught me as well. And there's an equal share there. So I left out the part about the things I invented for the government. Well, I have a whole list of questions here. So whenever <laughs> you get to where a stopping point, we can dive into some of the stuff that you're skipping through, but I'll let you continue uh, on with where you're going right now. Well, I'll just wrap it up by saying uh, they showed up in a ghost town in central Nevada, gave me a crystal ball. And then uh, 10 years later, they showed up uh, to let me know that my mother was going to die in December. This was in um, late October, early November, that she would be, she would die sometime around the middle of December. And if I wanted to make peace with her, I could. Um, and they also want to make sure that uh, they said there's going to be information that you're going to discover that's going to be very challenging. And we want to make sure your mental health is intact so that you're not uh, damaged by the news that you receive. 
And I said, what news is that? So they told me the entire scope, including some of the memories that I had always had from those very early moments on this world about how I was adopted, the circumstances surrounding that. And, um, you know, my existence basically and how I got here and why I was here and that sort of thing. And like, oh, well, how about that? Um, so, of course, I didn't have anyone to tell. The woman I was married to at the time was one of those, who just, you know, don't talk to me about this, buddy. Mm-hmm. And I won't really lose respect for you. Well, when the light came into the house, she was completely paralyzed. And Zoe came in and sat down on the edge of the bed and talked to me. She, all she remembers was seeing the light moving towards her, and then she blacked out. Uh, there were people across the street that remembered seeing a UFO land in the street. We were on a side street in Phoenix, North Phoenix. And then it's like, they must've just had a weird dream, but they reported it anyway. So she did die. And, uh, just as they had predicted. And then there was news that was presented to me by my sister that uh, she was there at the uh, funeral and the men were talking and they wanted to know if I'd ever found out if, if she had ever told me that I was adopted and the details about it. And then some other men apparently showed up and wanted to talk to the stepfather about this as well and about how uh, it was important that I, I knew about my origins. No one ever talked to me about it past that point from that end of things, but my sister overheard the, overheard the conversations. And when she called, she said, I, I think you might want to sit down because I have some things I got to tell you. And I just find it hard to believe, but I, I need to tell you. And so she did. <clears throat> and it was running a parallel track to what Zoe had told me. So that's how I'll wrap up this particular part of it is that's how I found out for sure, you know, why I'm so different than them and perhaps why I'm a lot different than a lot of other people. But Zoe did tell me that there were others who had been brought here as well. Same kind of circumstances. Right. So let's try and uh, for the people who don't know your story, they might be a little lost. So you were, brought here dropped off in an abandoned farmhouse physically brought yeah physically brought here and dropped off in an abandoned farmhouse right and you that's where you were talking about the beginning it was very cold and you might have experienced frostbite and then some men came and retrieved you from the farmhouse and where did they take you from the farmhouse well it was the army air corps from fort knox kentucky there was no air force at that time and they took me to fort knox hospital on base And I stayed there, uh, I don't know how long, no idea. But then I was handed off to this, uh, you know, military man. And uh, he was chosen because uh, his wife, to be my mother, was incapable of bearing children as a result of radium poisoning. They put radium in rat poison and it... um, kind of screwed up the reproductive system of some of the people that uh, were exposed to it. 
but that's how I got handed off. And then the uh, birth certificate was basically, it's basically blank. I mean, you, you've seen birth certificates before, but mine has just nearly nothing on it. Right. So, and then at what point were you brought to Fort Knox Med Medical Center? Was that where they took you? That's where they took me. Yeah, I was a baby. Okay. And then how long were you, how long were you there until you were handed off to the army? I have no idea. I really no. don't. Even, I don't know how old I was, and I don't know how long I stayed there till I was handed off. The um, thing that's always puzzled me is, you know, they say my birthday is September 11th, and September 11th was chosen. Uh, Zoe even told me at one point, you know, remember your birthday because it's a turning point in your planet's history. And, you know, I never knew what that meant. He says, well, when the world goes to Riyadh, you know, the choices that the people of your world have made were not towards peace. I didn't know what that was either. Not until Desert Storm. And then when 9-11 happened, um, like, huh, well, now I'm starting to get a better picture of things. Mm -hmm. So they explained to you, so you ran into a man at, uh, I'm not, I don't know the details, but didn't you run into somebody who was so excited to meet you? He's like, I can't believe I finally, I'm finally got to meet you. Oh yeah. That guy in Tempe, yeah, this older fellow, he was, uh, he was a, a military guy. He was at Fort Knox and part of the guys that showed up to, uh, retrieve me. And he was just, he was just blown away. You know, when I told my, I, he didn't know me from anybody, but I told the story probably, you know, about the same amount of detail I've told you folks. And, um, afterwards, you know, he was dressed in his military outfit and everything, you know, and afterwards, um, he came up and gave me a hug. He's a really old guy at that point. Uh, really old. And he said, you know, I know you won't remember me, but I was there. And I was one of the first per one of the first persons you met when you arrived to this world. And he explained to me that they had gotten the time wrong. He says, typical military, uh, is supposed to be there at, um, 11 o'clock. Well, um, they didn't get there until 11 o'clock at night. And <clears throat> so I'd been there like before dawn, all the way through the day, all the way until 11 o'clock at night, apparently. And that's when, uh, they came and retrieved me. I was almost there 24 hours by myself. And, um, he was, you know, pretty elated. And wanted to tell me, you know, his part of this story, so I would know that much more. And that's why I know, you know, these men that I remembered, you know, some somebody coming in lights, and you know, it was all very confusing as a memory. But he really filled in the details and told me that I was taken to Fort Knox Hospital, uh, and that's where I was. Uh, that's where I stayed, and then he lost track of me altogether. And who was it that told you about Project Red Light and Eisenhower and all that information? Can and can you share that story? 
Well, uh, that's that's two different uh, trajectories. Project Red Light is what that fellow told me, the old man, that it's called Project Red Light. The Eisenhower contact was told to me by Zoe. And, you know, he, he basically said that um, they were trying to work out a relationship with the government here on this world. And not just the United States, but the United States was a power and they were, you know, talking because we were friendly compared to the Russians. Anyway, they wanted to have this conversation to offer this world benefit of their scientific advancements and the ability to uh, open trade between our world and other worlds have people openly come here and from here go there. It was it was a, a very generous offer, and they would share technology. But apparently, all the people here wanted was some way to wipe out the Russians, and they wouldn't give them weapons. Well, there was another group, uh, the Greys, that um, they were fine giving weapons you know they had their own agenda right and they worked out this agreement it was unfortunate that the weapons they provided were really useful you know people against people here but it really wouldn't do a damn thing against the greys or these other groups that were in the same ilk as the greys there's there's more than just the greys so these weapons would have no benefit protect you from them and the um you know the thing that was put in place was that they could come here they could conduct tests here they could get raw materials they needed they could examine people here but they and it was all it was all authorized you know by our government but um it didn't turn out as dandy as the government thought it was going to. They were very ignorant and uh, thinking the Greys were being altruistic when they weren't, because they are not altruistic, even a little. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what that's all about. So, and but it was part of that agreement is how you actually got here, right? Something that Eisenhower agreed to, uh, so that our government was very much aware of this program of the ETs bringing infants here? Oh, yeah. That was that was authorized. It was allowed. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. And there were even children that were introduced to Eisenhower, um, which I really didn't know. I mean, I've told this story over the course of several decades. Just telling it because this is what I I think I know. This is a real thing to me. But when um, I was on another show with Michael Sala, he kind of blew my mind because he produced documents, uh, the majestic documents that talked about this. And one of my distant memories, I was flying over the desert, going to some place, it was just a, a blip in the memory, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it from on high, seeing the old cars driving down underneath like uh, slug bugs. They were going so slow. But um, then when Michael Sala 
provided that information to me, it it really set me back on uh, on my butt because that validated to me some of the things that I'd already remembered, and it also validated some of the things that I'd heard from Zoe and, and a couple of the others actually that was with Zoe. One was a woman, so it was really quite astonishing. I mean. It's one thing to have memories like this. I mean, anybody can have weird-ass memories, right? Right. And you don't know if they're real or not. But then to have them so persistent for so long, well, it just sort of becomes who you are. Whether it's real or not, it's part of your story. But then to start having pieces fall into place, a little here, a little there, and then in Michael Sala's case, a big chunk, it... um it gave me validation that these things that I'd been wondering about for so long, if could it possibly be true, it gave me validation that, yeah, I guess it is true. Yeah. And I, I fully believe that it is. And there's, like I said, a number of people who um, claim a similar, they have a similar story where like Billy Woodard, he claimed he was left in a dumpster actually. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, from from the hollow earth which was still ets but it's a, it's a similar story and then he was you know ultimately picked up by somebody in law enforcement not just you know in your case it was military in his case it was law enforcement and then the aztec ufo crash there was allegedly three infants that came here from that crash but the beings zoe i guess that you're communicating with is from how SETI, if I'm not mistaken? That's what I remember. <clears throat> That's what I remember. Um, you know, we're talking about memories <laughs> that I've tried to keep, you know, fresh and vital in my uh, consciousness for quite a long time. And yeah, it, Tau City was a predominant, um, or a predominant uh, star that was mentioned. I mean, he showed me Tau City. There was another one called uh, Aaron Donny. Um, God, I don't remember the names of these things. It's not something that I use every day or even with any frequency. But he named off some stars. And later in life, I went and looked these stars up. And sure enough, you know, there they are. Right. You know, there, there were actual places. And then when I heard about the Betty and Barney Hill, well, that was something that came out during my contacts with Zoe. Um, I think it happened before I ever had those contacts and I came across the story. And so I asked him about it and, <clears throat> you know, he was, he was giving me some of the, some of the background detail, telling me, yeah, it was a real thing. Um, and the people that they met, uh, they were not the grays, but there's another race that looks similar to them. that are kind of a bluish cast. They're, they're not blue but they're kind of a, a grayish with a bluish cast to them. They're, they're different, a different, um, you know, I would say species probably, mm -hmm. but they're just different, you know, kind of like in this world, you have Asians and Indians and right. people from Africa and white guys like us. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're all the same species, but we're just different. Right. What, I, we've, what we've heard is there's, there's like thousands of different species that all look similar to the typical gray 
type mm -hmm. of being, but they're all different species. They're not just one that looks like that, like a lot of people think. Yeah. And the ones that I saw that um, I had interaction with, they were actually taller than the little grays. I've seen the grays, mm -hmm. and I've been warned off by them a few times, and I just told them I'd, you know, break their fat head off their skinny ass neck they didn't knock it off <laughs> they they weren't prepared for me to be able to overwhelm their mind control mm. but i've uh, met others that are similar but they're taller and they have this bluish bluish cast to them and they're also well the grays you know they're all very powerful telepathically um yeah. But these guys were good guys. They didn't speak like we speak. They spoke in pictures in my head. When I was really sick, that's when I met them. I was only about 14. And <clears throat> yeah, they um, they showed up and <laughs> floated me out of the damn house right across the field, right into a big saucer just hanging over the, hanging over the field um, and gave me a shot like a shot really but you know an injection of some sort and the next day i was perfectly fine um so they were healing you yeah they were and Zoe was there too um because i was kind of freaked out seeing these guys i didn't know i'd never seen anything like that before ever in my mind people from ufos they look like people well these people didn't look like people they they looked well, I mean, I guess scary, especially when you're laying there in your underwear on a metal table and big plasma screen TV. Didn't know what it was then, but that's what it would look like. Big um, flat panel TV with my image, you know, but all colors and things happening on it. And they're standing there making little click-click sounds to themselves and holding these little tools. I duplicated one of those tools uh, for the government later. Um, now you, you can get them anywhere. You know, it's pretty simple stuff. But <clears throat> yeah, what, they. Uh, what they, tool they were, did you duplicate? Was it uh, uh, something with a red light? Is that, I think I remember you telling? That's, yeah, that's what it is. And what that's was its purpose? To speed healing and to alleviate pain. Okay, so um, like just a little pen with a LED light on the end of it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, of course, in their case, it was more of a, a clear wand that just had a red tip. And I understand that now. I know why it was a red tip, but <clears throat> they would just sort of touch it to my skin, different places, and look up on the monitor. And they'd clicky-click back and forth and move it over here. Turn the brightness up some, you know, there's more information. I really don't know exactly how that worked, but I asked Zoe about this later because they were teaching me electronics and astrophysics and all kinds of stuff. Um, and he told me, you know, what it was all about and how it worked. Well, you know, at the time, there was no such thing as an LED on this world. And, uh, fast forward ahead about six years and you know 
Texas Instruments had little red LEDs in their calculator, which was pretty groovy. <clears throat> but I needed something that was terrifically powerful. And I offered to make this. And I didn't tell them how I knew about it or what it was meant to do or any of that. I just told them I knew this would work. And I'd already done a bunch of other things for them that every time I did something, it worked. So they got me what I needed and it worked as well. And it got classified. And then probably in the nineties, it uh, must've been declassified because people started using it for their horses. And then the, um, I don't know, FDA, probably AMA. I don't know who it was, but someone classified light as a controlled substance. Uh, <laughs> honestly, honestly, it's laughable, but, um, then, you know, that kind of fell off to the side as well. And um, so I made a few of these devices, uh, sold it. It's called the Guardian Crystal. I'm not making them anymore, but they're pretty dandy. And they worked exactly with their, to do what they were supposed to do. Plus, they also had the unique ability to light up a person's aura so anybody can see an aura. Mm. But you don't need the guardian crystal to do that. The crystal was just a carrier medium for the light to go through and diffuse it. Um, so, yeah. So a few things. It's interesting how Tau Seti played such a prominent role in the 50s and 40s. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Oscar case. Uh, it's a UFO crash retrieval um, case. This We interviewed a guy who did a seven-year investigation with a member of the team who was part of this delta force crash retrieval and uh the beings from that craft were from tau Ceti, and they were completely human looking in appearance and it's one of the best um investigations that has some of the most evidence that we've ever encountered but um tau Ceti was the tau Cetians were very much in communication with our government and the Eridani. And that those yeah. were so whenever uh, Majestic 12 was formed and it was turned into SETI, the very two first stars that they decided to try to contact or make re, uh, make communication with was Tau SETI and Epsilon Eridani. So mm -hmm. that was, I mean, the government knew exactly, you know, who the Tau Setians were, and they had been already communicating with them, which is no surprise that that's the two stars they chose to publicly announce that they were going to try and communicate with um so I, I just very interesting this is another case of that time period with the tau city as tau settings being uh sure active and so how did you even get into a position where you were inventing things or developing things for the government with the <laughs> um you know were you brought into the you they wanted you to joined the uh, air force correct but you never did yeah that's right um there wasn't they wanted me to when i was growing up they always had these people show up when my dad was alive uh i was supposed to go to the air force academy it was a new thing and i was going to go to the air force academy and become this big scientist um thank you sweetie i now have a cup of chaos so I'm in good standing at the moment. <laughs> nice. That's what we call coffee here. Oh, nice. very nice. <laughs> so anyway, um, no, I mean, these these guys with all the brass on and all the decorations and everything, they, they showed up frequently, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, 
when I, when I got sick as a child, they showed up. Um, I wasn't sick for very long, but, you know, they were always interested in how I'm doing. And then, you know, periodically, well, periodically, like once every year, uh, my mom and dad would take off and uh, we'd go to Florida and then we'd stay near the beach. And then after we were there for a couple of days, my uncle Sam would take my dad and I out into the Everglades. We'd get in a boat, go paddling along. And then, um, you know, I was eventually taken to a place <clears throat> where these people in hazmat suits, I didn't know what kind of suits they were when I was a kid, but they looked just like hazmat suits. They showed up and, um, I promptly lost consciousness and and I woke up back home and it's time for pancakes the next day. That was once a year for quite a number of years. Uh, and these same people in, in suits and also in uh, army regalia. Um, my dad took me to a Masonic meeting. He was a Mason and um, put me in a little one piece jumpsuit kind of a grayish silver looking thing gave me these words to read well you know i was only like six years old but you know i, I was well ahead of my years in my intellectual capacity <clears throat> so i memorized the words went out there in front of this large audience the room was just dark you could see people but you couldn't really pick out anything standing on the stage microphones adjusted way down where i'm at and I had to say these things. Um, it was it was Latin, as I recall. And then um, I never really knew what it meant, but it was like a paragraph. And then when I was finished, I'd bow, turn around, and walk back off uh, stage left. Um, actually, stage right because you're facing stage right. And uh, my dad would be back there. He's beaming. And then all these people would show up and they just went by and they all wanted to pat me on the head or grab my shoulders or shake my hand. And that went on for a long damn time that night. And then I had to take this suit thing off, put back on my trousers, my shirt, my tie, my jacket, even had cufflinks. And my dad and I would go home. So, and what, yeah. age, what age was this? I was about six years old. Wow, okay. Yeah, he died about a year later. So you were being frequently picked up and basically experiencing missing time. You're taken by men in hazmat suits and you would just wake up the next morning in bed not really having recall of what happened? Or I didn't know what happened. I know how I got there. Well, my Uncle Sam picked us up in his big-ass black limousine kind of car, like a Lincoln Continental, you know? Right. And we'd just go driving out, you know, for a while. And I was looking for alligators and birds and monkeys or anything. Who knows what I was looking for? We turned off the highway, go on to these, this white, sandy kind of, not a dirt road, but a sandy road. We're traveling down here, and you take a left go down even farther and drive for a long time and you get out and there's a boat sitting there so my uncle sam and my dad would get out they'd check out you know if it was i guess any 
snakes or crocodiles or alligators or whatever's down there. And then um, they'd tell me, okay, come on, let's go for a ride. And I'd get out of there, go down to the boat. And we'd start paddling and going down this, this channel. Uh, we get down a ways and then just like a big wall of trees and brush and just stuff in the way, you know. And then my Uncle Sam would say something. He'd whistle and say something, hey, boys, or something. And these people would pop up out of the brush. Well, they had all these things all over them, too. It looks like they were a, a living bush. And um, there's words exchanged. They pulled on a rope and started pulling this rope. And as they pulled it up, this thing was like a flap went up. We went under it. And I guess it went back down because I was just focused ahead. And then we get off a little ways down there, uh, left side, where there's a clearing. And um, I'd done this a few times. <laughs> it was always the same soldier. I remember him so well. I don't know what his name was, but I can see his face very clearly in my mind. Always the same guy. He gives me a stick of juicy fruit gum. He's happy to see me. I, I love juicy fruit gum, so I'd chew the gum up. <clears throat> He'd walk me over uh, towards this big canvas tent that had um, like bushes and stuff on it too. Big doors, they'd open. There'd be these two guys come out in these white outfits, like I said, hazmat suits, and like the Michelin man. And he told me to be a good boy, and he'll see me next time. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm walking with them, and then I don't remember anything else. So I don't know what, what uh, it's been speculated that they gave me something to just kind of knock me out. Uh, they took me in there and did whatever it is they do. That's really interesting. Mm. It, it's a really interesting setup to just have in the middle of the woods. Right. In a swamp, I mean, land. I don't... And for it to be seemingly temporary, if it's all canvas, uh, you know, it's not an actual structure. No, it wasn't. It's like it was uh, set up, but it was a nice clearing. It was a pretty big area. There were other tents around there as well. It wasn't just that one, but that was the biggest one. So they were potentially running tests on you or collecting. That's that's the only thing. That's the only thing I can figure. It's just mm -hmm. that's what it was. Yeah, because I really haven't any idea what they were doing. I don't have any memories of that at all. Just you know, walking up to it and never even remembering going inside. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. That, well, the next day, I woke up back in the hotel room, and my mom's wanting to know, you know, how I'm doing, and my dad tells me I was a, you know, such a good boy, and we're we're gonna go have pancakes at the pancake house. Well, what the hell? Forget all that other stuff. Let's go for pancakes. And that's how it was. You know, big glass of milk, some pancakes. It's time for more fun. We drove out there and we drove back all the way from um, uh, all the way from Denver. Oh, wow. I mean, so you had obviously the military was monitoring you the entire your entire life, which if I think were, so. Yeah. I mean, if they were showing oh, yeah. up. 
if they were showing up at your house with you know the brass and well when my dad died <clears throat> it's like it was a pretty bad time you know within hours when he died in the morning coming out of the shower um i can still see him on the floor in the kitchen on his back and i remember putting my hand on him and i i i, I could feel and see that it was like something was terribly wrong i didn't have words for it anyway he got whisked off to the hospital never saw him again never went to his funeral but later that afternoon these men showed up uh in these nice military hats and all this brass and stuff on their shirts plus there were other guys there, there were three other guys aside from them dressed in black suits <clears throat> and they were there to take me and my mother wouldn't have anything to do with it another one of those times when she said it's my you know birth certificate my son there's nothing you can do get the hell out of my house and they said well you know something will be back and she was totally freaked out because her husband had just died anyway and now these guys are showing up to take me away well i didn't know who these guys were really i mean they showed up so often when i was a kid but it's not like i knew who they were you know like you'd know a family friend or something right so anyway yeah um we left there went to my uncle jimmy's the one that used my talents to get a house and then uh we moved back to kentucky and uh lived in a chicken coop for a while that had been remodeled into a one-room place to live with uh no running water and that's my excursion into green acres life so the your mother do you really think that she knew everything absolutely about you? okay absolutely there was uh there was a lawyer in elizabethtown kentucky that um, has passed away and his records are scattered to the four corners of the earth at this point but he was liaison between um her and something else i don't know what else but it had to do with the government because you know with time when my dad was alive um it was all set up you know the three of them were like the, the three musketeers and he was like on our side but he was the liaison and the government was paying them some amount of money that i i don't even know how much money they were they were getting but um because they lived in kentucky first <clears throat> and then he got a government job in denver and um so then he we moved out to denver but anyway he had this this government subsidy of some sort and it continued on until i was 18. i didn't even know that existed until i left home and then i was told about what a hardship i had caused because now those funds had been stopped and it's like well like it's so your sorry fault. about that right if you'd have been nice maybe i would have stuck around but 
getting beat too frequently is not exactly in my best interests. Of course. Right. So this, so at what point did you end up working for these corporations, inventing things where they were? It was only one. Okay. And that was called Kessinger's Industries. It was in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Jim Kessinger was the owner of that. And I don't know what the records are. I don't even know if Jim's still alive. I hope he is. He was a really nice guy. Um, somehow, I don't know how, but I got a job there. And there was this room. It was about uh, 20 by 40. It was a laboratory. Had all kinds of, not all kinds of equipment at first. There wasn't a whole lot there. But um, it turned into quite a laboratory over the course of time. And the way it worked was basically, Jim, I would sit back there and smoke cigarettes and listen to rock and roll music. I really wanted to be a hippie, but it just never quite worked out. Hmm. So um, Jim would come back and he'd say, you know, we were thinking about doing such and such, but don't really know how to do that. Do you have any ideas? I said, I don't know. Let me have a Coke and a cigarette, listen to some music, and I'll let you know in a few minutes. So I always listened to <clears throat> Tommy James and Shondell's Crim Crimson and Clover. I don't know why, um, but I'd have a Coke and a cigarette or two. And by the time that song was over, I'd go and see Jim, and it's typically, let's say, within 15 minutes, because it wasn't as soon as the song was over, actually. I'd say, yeah, this is how you do it. And I'd explain all the little details, step by step by step by step. Can you build it? So I don't know. Well, in the beginning, I really didn't know how the hell to build something like that. I, I, I could see it in my mind, but I didn't have to build it. So for the first year, they had, uh, and I didn't know they were government. You know, it was just this guy, and he had a nice building, and I was working there, making money every week. But they had, uh, they, they flew in one fellow from Princeton and another from MIT, and it was a different one every week, back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> and over the course of a year, they taught me immersively electronics uh electronics theory engineering how to how to build circuit boards how to calculate um inductances i mean just all kinds of stuff it was just amazing the amount of knowledge these two guys imparted and i i didn't really understand why they were coming there just to do that for me but i would take it <clears throat> so at the end of it all, they still showed up, I mean, after the first year, <clears throat> but not as frequently, only when I really needed something. And sometimes they both showed up for that. But uh, usually I didn't need their help. Once I got past a point, I could just feed my own mind, you know, and, and get a lot more going on in my own way. But yeah, that's how I ended up working there. And uh, I stayed working there really until <clears throat> this um, newscast with Walter Cronkite. You see, the Vietnam War was going on. Okay. 
Well, in this newscast, it's not like the news is today. The news today is more of a, a psyop. Yeah. Yeah. To put it mildly. Yeah. 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 But back then, the Vietnam War, well, here you are, you know, this is how many, how many soldiers uh, died. And here's the casualties from the other side. And here's war footage and all this stuff. And there's a brand new thing that has really helped the war effort. It is a Claymore mine detonator that triggers every single time. Hmm. And he didn't really go into details about it, but I knew about it because about six weeks ago, I told him how to do it. But you didn't know that's what it was going to be used for. <clears throat> no. You know, what they were doing was they were using magnets and coils of wire to send a signal um, down a line, down a wire, and then that triggered the detonation aspect of the Claymore mine. But the more moisture there was, the more inductance there was in the wire to induce that voltage into the soil or surrounding moisture. Anyway, it wasn't that good. And one of the things Jim asked me was, here's the problem. What's the solution? Well, that only took one cigarette and halfway through the song, I knew exactly what I was going to do. So I went back and told him, said, here's how you do it. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. So the next time, you know, I went back to work, that was on a Friday. The next Monday I came in, here's this military brass sitting there. They want to know. So you think you have a better idea. And they were always stuffy like that. I, it kind of, they were intimidating to tell you the truth. And so I was like, yes, sir. Um, this is how you do it. And they're like, all right, draw it up and uh, build us one. So I did. And it's the last I ever saw of it. After all was said and done, I'd built it. Everything tested showed it was you know, proof of thesis. Six weeks later, I'm seeing this show with Walter Cronkite. And it shows people in this jungle-esque setting. And it's raining, as I remember, in this far-off land. And all of a sudden, kablooey. And people and people pieces just going all over the damn place. And when I saw that, my heart sank. Because the things that I know how to do are not meant to hurt other people. It's to bring more benefit to life on this world. Right, right. And so I, I went in and I quit. <clears throat> surrendered, <clears throat> excuse me, surrendered uh, any security clearances I had. <clears throat> gave them uh, whatever it was they needed. And uh, I walked the hell out of there at like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. That's I told, I told Jim in the beginning, I can't, I can't give you information that will hurt people, but I can give you information that will help them. Mm. <clears throat> so here you go. What a mess. So, I mean, our history is replete with inventions and inventors meant to 
help humanity that then gets used to weaponize against humanity instead, right? Yeah. Well, you know, technology is a double-edged sword. Right. It's the intention that either gives it a good or a bad potential. Right. You know, even good people with the best intentions can end up doing something that causes harm or ends up, you know, becoming mm -hmm. a, a useful tool for the bad guy. And in my case, that's what occurred. Absolutely. So I went out to Jerry's restaurant and got a job as a dishwasher. <laughs> so do you still, I mean, do you think all these abilities that you have, obviously you were probably born with them, psychic abilities and, and all the things they were teaching you, Zoe was teaching you throughout the years. Was that why you, you probably excelled in the technological side or invention as, as you would put it? Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> you know, part of part of my background was that from an early age until I drank a bottle of tequila at 18, I had an absolutely perfect photographic memory. I would only read something once. And no matter when you asked me, it could be Tolstoy's War and Peace, which was very interesting. But let's take it in a different direction. Let's say the dictionary. I tried to read the dictionary. It got boring after the letter C. <laughs> but my vocabulary was far and beyond <clears throat> anybody around me. Um, I read all of Shakespeare's works. And, you know, what was it like? Um, third year high school in literature class. Shakespeare was part of it. And they wanted you to read out loud, you know, a passage from Shakespeare and all these other boys and girls, they were reading it. And then came my time. And I told the teacher, this isn't meant to be read. It's meant to be experienced because I'd already read so many books on so many things. And I'd already read the thing from Shakespeare, although I had the book in front of me, I closed it and set it down, and I read the next three pages, living that moment instead of uh, just reciting words. And she had to stop me. Wow. She said, mm -hmm. you, you remember all that? I said, why don't you go this other book here, page one, let's say 138, just as a conversational example. And so, she opened it up and I started reading right out of that. <laughs> I knew exactly from one top of 138 all the way down to the next page and the next page. So, yeah, the ability to see things and build things are two separate abilities. But in the mix between the two was a mind that was capable of rationalizing exactly how this all fits together a lot of the information came from all the books that i read but the ability to have that kind of comprehensive uh memory was because of my experiences with zoe mm -hmm. do you do you continue any of that work today no i quit there's no point in it why do you say I, that? Just because, oh, go ahead. 
Uh, I know. Why would I say that? Because I've I've invented too many things <clears throat> for people. And the only people that have the money to make these are corporations. So I've invented several things, and the corporations always want you to sign it all away because you're a nobody. Mm -hmm. Becomes the property of blah, 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 fill in the blanks. But there's a gentleman's agreement that if you actually do this, well, you're going to get recognized, and yeah, you're going to get some uh, kickback on this. Well, in the case of the... Um, 3D electron microscope. No, there wasn't any kickback. I saw these other guys get a Nobel Prize. And I'm the one that drew it out. There's no mention of me anywhere. Right. You know, the um, uh, the VR helmet. I'm not saying that other people weren't smart enough to figure this shit out because I know they were. But I, I made the very first VR helmet. I designed it as a gift for NASA, and I showed it to, because um, it had terrific potential for gaming, you know. If you've ever used a VR helmet, you know that now. But at the time, people, their mind didn't go that far. Mm -hmm. So I showed it to Bally Gaming Systems, and their, their um, brilliant German engineer and his fantastic eloquent german voice told me that the computational power is is overwhelming i don't know how we could ever do something like this and i said well if you build this by the time you get it done you know you'll have the computational power no it's just a waste of time so even though they signed non-disclosure agreements didn't matter you have to have money to go after people like that mm -hmm. sega sega genesis 3d that occurred somewhere around nine months after I showed them because this was in the spring. And I went to CES show in Jan the following January, and they had the Sega Genesis 3D, where you get a 3D picture on a flat picture tube. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember that. Well, I, yeah. Well, theirs was clunky, mine was perfection. Their limitations had to do with computational power. Right. You see, a TV screen operates at 30 frames per second. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so you've got you've got 30 scan lines, and then you have another 30 rescan lines. And that's 30 frames a second. Four by five is the aspect ratio. So I designed um some liquid crystal glasses they look exactly the same as because <laughs> i showed it to them you know as sega genesis 3d um and these liquid crystal lenses would pulsate so i needed to make a 60 cycle rate mm -hmm. to run that program because if you take 30 cycles and you run it at 15 per eye you get flicker at 30 per eye, you get no flicker whatsoever. And I had greater depth of field and more complexity because I could actually put a set of cameras 
uh, 70 millimeters apart, roughly. Put them on a roller coaster, because that's what I did, and show you what it's like to wear this thing and look at what it's like to sit in the front of the damn roller coaster. And it was really kind of nauseating. <laughs> right. But you know, it still it still gave you the idea. And um, anyway, Sega came out with 15 frames per second with um, their little liquid crystal lenses being fired off by, what was it, 0.5 volts, I think. Um, anyhow. So you basically got tired of them stealing your inventions and you not getting credit for it? Is that what happened over and over? And also being used for nefarious purposes, potentially? Um. I don't know about the nefarious purposes for any of this stuff. I know there could be, and I know there have been, especially for the VR systems. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I mean, I, it's not that I wanted to be a millionaire. I just wanted my name to be on there. Somebody to go, gee, that was really great. Thank you. You just won the credit, right? And right. Instead, of, instead of saying basically, oh, that's pretty clever. Okay, go to hell. Right. 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 And that's what it ended up being. So if I'm going to be dealing with people that are that base, why would I waste my time giving them access to even greater things that I know? Mm -hmm. You know, they need to be nice. If they can't be nice, I don't want to play. Right. What are you going to say? Oh, no, it's just, no. Oh, yeah. I mean, I totally understand that. And it's, it's unfortunate. And hopefully we're going to move past this or move into a time where we can actually start inventing things that aren't going to be immediately grabbed up by the government and these agencies and corporations and used or even not even used at all suppressed you know the military industrial complex you know they're the first ones to use this technology and by the time we get it it's decades old as we know but it's it's so a shame that people, brilliant minds out there like yourself, are, are just like get, mm. throwing in the towel because you understand the the scenario we're in and the circumstances. So and and beyond sure. and and then you get into the free energy technology, which we've had for at least a hundred years since yeah. Tesla and you know many others that have invented. And what happens every time they get Anybody killed or they get silenced or it gets taken and confiscated, never seen again. It gets weaponized against humanity just over and over that. and over and over you know i there are things that i know in that regard mm -hmm. why what the hell would i want to be even giving that information out for right you know all it's going to do is put a big red, big red target on your Huge back target right so you know hell i just as soon skip it and just do what i'm doing mm, interesting right. so what are you doing nowadays well, what I'm doing predominantly, um, I'm working on people who are ill. And basically, Kathy doesn't like it that I say it this way, but mostly I, I fix broken people. Um, you see, with, with the ability that I've always had, whether it was putting my hand on a radio or a TV and it's not working and see why it isn't just by touching it. Well, it's a lot more beneficial to the world if I put it on a person. And it's gotten to the point now I don't even need to put my hand on a person. You know, I just, because I work on people all over the world. And I just um, 
I just connect with them. Ingo Swan, a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. for his passing. Um, he he really loved Kathy. <laughs> he he thought she was pretty special. Anyway, um, Ingo told me it was something called remote presence. He helped me to coin the phrase because his was remote viewing, mm-hmm. and mine is remote presence. <clears throat> so it's kind of the same thing, except you're projecting yourself there instead of just looking. But I work on people all over the world now. That's basically what I do. Um, There is another side to me. And that's where I do broadcasting, have my own show like you guys do, and connect with the world that way. It's kind of necessary because I deal with a lot of people, with a lot of tragedy, with a lot of pain, a lot of illness. And being able to just get out of that for a little while and just go out there into the world in a different format. And it feels very healthy for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I, I might have to set a session up with you for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I got some, I got some stuff going on. I've been uh, struggling with for years, so maybe we can talk afterwards, but. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, what did you say? You know? Yeah, I know. But you you can be fine. Well, so don't wor- if it's worrisome, don't worry any longer. It can be fine. Well, that's good. Um, I'm not going to go into any details during a broadcast, but just know that you'll be fine. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's I agree great with news. that. <laughs> it's great news. And I have that feeling also, but it's this weird journey, um, this whole healing journey. It's been a roller coaster, and I've seen a lot of people and and done a lot of uh, work on myself, but it's still uh, something that I just can't quite figure out. But um, Yeah, I was just wanting to know if, if you could get into your Peru experiences and that whole... Sure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Before we go any further, I'm going to have a cigarette. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Go ahead. And for your audience who are wondering, how is this guy from another world having a cigarette? Well, remember, Zoe told me to come here and be like everybody else. So I had hot hamburgers, hot dogs, and pizza, love spaghetti, ice cream, Cokes, yeah. coffee, and cigarettes. <laughs> You're living the human experience. Right. I that's mean, what we talk about it all the time. Like, Well, I mean, that's kind of why we come here. I think all of us, we come here to experience this realm. And not try to escape it. Now, obviously, obviously there's an extreme yeah. that, you, you know, yeah. you don't go either extreme where you f- you try to fully avoid the human. You didn't come to the human experience to avoid the human experience altogether. And that's the whole spiritual bypassing and all that kind of stuff. But then yeah. there's the people that, you know, then you go, you're <clears throat> living a very unhealthy where you're destroying. But you just yourself. don't want to you don't abuse really go that route either. Yeah. Right. You want to abuse things. Well, you know, a lot of folks say, <clears throat> how can you be a healer and you smoke? Right. Well, how can you be sick and you don't? <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. Everything about that. <laughs> you know, it's not that I'm endorsing it at all, but you know, the truth is you find the things in in life that make you happy. Right. Me, aside from Kathy and my bass guitar, in that order, the things that make me happy are a cup of coffee and a cigarette always has and probably always will and if you're worried about how it's damaging my body 
Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But biologically, my system uh, internally is running at about 38 years old. I've had it tested. That's amazing. I'm 70. Uh, the only depreciative thing that I've got is, you know, my rock and roll hair seems to have been stolen, but I think that was the result of a terrific level of stress when Kathy was ill and there was nothing I could do to help her. Mm. And that, um, that changed me physiologically for a while. And I think it damaged the hair follicles, but aside from that, yeah, still a single person, still ready to climb a mountain, feel damn good and, uh, very strong and vital. So that's great. I, oh. Cigarette, part of my happiness. Yeah. Find what makes you happy and stick to it, even if other people tell you, you know, there's something wrong with it. They don't know your experience. Yeah. yeah. Who was the guru? There was a guru once, I can't remember who it was, that said something like, if you don't have any vice, then you'll just like float away or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah. like there's got to be something that, right. you know, right. you partake and that makes you like you said that just makes you happy that you enjoy right well yeah exactly right you know and what are the choices i met a guy that moved to phoenix from the hills of west virginia uh the mountains actually um and he was telling me that you know he was really unsettled and very unhappy and so, well, what's the problem? He says, well, I used to sit out on my porch and smoke my pipe when it would rain or in the afternoon or even in the evenings with the stars. He says, and now all the people I'm around are telling me how bad it is for me to smoke my pipe and make me, just make me not want to do it and just give me too much trouble about it. So I just stopped. Mm. And I said, well, they don't know your experience. So if you don't do what makes you happy, then what are you doing and who are you doing it for? Right. So go get a damn pipe and some tobacco. I lit up a cigarette and I said, I'm doing what makes me happy and to hell with anybody that doesn't like it. I don't care. Yeah. That's, that's called, uh, being sovereign and knowing who you are and that's power. Right it there. is. Yeah, it is. That's it. And, mm -hmm. A lot of folks don't have that personal power. They're they're afraid of offending somebody else because of being who they are. Right. But if if that's what's going on, then who are you being and who are you being this for? Right. I mean, we all wear masks in life. We all do. It's whether uh, we decide to keep those masks in place. And good examples of that are, you know, uh, there's, the, there's the man, then there's the husband, the father, the son. And each one of these different characterizations is a different um, personalization, a different shift in the person you are in order to accommodate the vision this other person has of you in that characterization. Mm -hmm. right, if, right. So what happens is over a wide amount of time, at first it doesn't happen, but after a while, and we're talking years, you forget who you are and you just keep wearing the damn mask all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you end up at some point just being unhappy. It might make you sick, mm -hmm. you know, but you're just not 
you're not well but you become emotionally so attached to that mask you become very well attached. you become the mask you become you think yeah. you are the mask you become right? yeah, you, you become a cardboard cutout version of yourself basically right. you really don't know who you are but but all you know is the mask is what someone else told you you were or what you're that's exactly right for someone else right yeah so then i tell people um you need to go find yourself <laughs> you're not going to yeah. find yourself around people that you know mm -hmm. you're going to find yourself about people who have no damn idea who you are yep exactly and then once that happens you come back into your normal routine and now you're being yourself you've got to refuse to lift that mask up again but when you refuse to do that there are going to be people who are disappointed or threatened by the personification that you present mm -hmm. and there will be friends who will fall away there'll be marriages that'll end there'll be relationships that will cease to be friendly relationships because you're not being what they expect you to be right exactly yeah but the universe abhors a vacuum and the longer you do this the better off you are because you'll become surrounded by people who see you as you are right exactly and you've just given them permission to be themselves as well right the people that will love you for the real you will come in yeah. that are at that frequency and yeah. then you will actually be happy because then you're being authentic yeah and i've had to learn these lessons just like everybody else has to right you know i've i've, I've worn the mask and the damn thing got stuck for a while and as soon as i <laughs> took it off marriage has ended business collapsed all these things fell apart it's like that's too bad because it was not it was not living the truth about my right. existence it was living someone else's truth what they expected me to be for right. them right exactly man i could yeah. not <laughs> yeah i don't know what clap. i just want to clap right now i don't know what the pru experience was but this is probably far more important yeah oh yeah <laughs> this conversation well, the Peru experience actually was a very big part of it. Remember, I said go someplace where no one knows who the hell you are. Yeah, right. You become you you remain yourself for a while, but then after a bit, you you start discovering these little nuances of your own personality start surfacing, and you kind of feel good about it because this is this. I feel like I'm just at ease, and you notice that. So what happened in Peru? And I've been going, well, I've been back to Peru in a few years now because of all this business with getting jabbed and, oh, you know, man. masks and all that crazy shit. But um, in Peru, um, I had a few encounters that were really quite astonishing. One of them, and I won't go into the depth of detail on this because it would take up too much time. But one of them, there was a young lady from uh, Sweden. Um, I was down there by myself. Well, actually, I was leading a private tour for a very, very wealthy um, druggy boy. And the money was too good to pass up. As long as he behaved, it's cool. I didn't care. Anyway, I was at Machu Picchu, and uh, 
he was going up to the top of Winapichu. So when you look at Machu Picchu and across Machu Picchu, right behind there is this tall peaky point place. That's much that, that's Winapichu. The young mountain is what it means. And he was going up there with this fair faucet looking girl and her companion, who is the Swiss girl. And the Swiss girl and her just sort of met and they just sort of hang out. Well, about halfway up the mountain, um, she had used too much San Pedro, which is mm. an alkaloid, uh, mescaline alkaloid. And it's like, oh, my God, I don't even want to go up Winapichu. I said, I go halfway to show you the way. It's a pretty easy, recognizable, only one path to get it from that point on. So they took off. They went on. So I'm trying to help this girl. And basically what happened was she stripped off and she was going to fall into the abyss. Face up to the rain, arms out her side. I ran, grabbed her, went over the cliff with her, holding onto a rope, saved her ass. Wow. And then after pulling myself up uh, and her, which wasn't easy in the rain, it rains like nobody's business down there. Then I had to climb the rest of the way up to the top of Winapichu, carrying her, sometimes over my shoulder, uh, sometimes just kicking her up, you know, a few steps at a time, just pretty steep and very dangerous. And, uh, you know, saved her life. Well, I left in the middle of the night at midnight. You know, like I say, there's a lot of detail here I'm leaving out. But uh, going down Winapichu in the dark, with it rainy and slippy like that, it's not something anyone should ever attempt. But I did. Thank God for crush-proof boxes. and Could have a cigarette on the way down. <laughs> the next morning, actually the next afternoon, I met up with her uh, down in Aguacaliente. <clears throat> and um she said you were you were gallant you saved my life and i said no I, I was just doing what i needed to do to make sure you would be safe so well, you saved my life she says, is, this is who you really are and i said what do you mean she says you dropped your mask. We wanted to know if you could drop your mask. We wanted to know if we could have communications with you in the future. We wanted to know what kind of person you are. I, a woman, I was naked, and you and I were alone. You could have taken advantage of me, but you didn't. And I said, well, my God, no, I would never do such a thing. That would, there's no honor in that. She says, exactly, because that's who you are. Mm says so when i leave here i'll let them know the type of man you are i didn't know what that meant but i said so about this mask she said people always have a mask to conceal who they really are even in times of extraordinary troubles they have a mask they grab one that suits the occasion 
But the question they never ask themselves is, who are you being and who are you being this for? Right. And that stuck with me. And so the next major event that happened was shortly thereafter when I met a guy named Rich. He was from the Pleiades, and he was very familiar with what actions I had taken to help that young lady. And that's why he elected to spend time with me for the next few years every time I'd go to Peru. Um, and, you know, I, I learned a lot of lessons in Peru. You know, a lot of um, internal growth emotionally, but also spiritual growth and intellectual growth, too. Mm-hmm. So that's how Peru plays into all this. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I mean, I completely agree as far as traveling and being among people that you don't know. You do, I'd notice a different version of myself comes out, a version that I'm happy with. And, and you know, you just can't help it sometimes when you go into Christmas or go into a family gathering, you know, that mask. Sometimes you purposely put the mask on, you know. job or... right. You know, but when you're around somebody exactly. who, who doesn't know you, doesn't know your past, you don't feel like you have this reputation to withhold or with, you know, whatever I'm trying to say, but, um, you don't, you just don't feel like you have to perform right. And be this, That's right. yeah, this person that you're not. So I, I think this is a beautiful message to end this conversation on. Yeah. And the only last question I, I do have is. Are you still in communication with any of these beings that, you know, have been with you your whole life, like Zoe and some of these other... Rich, maybe. Yeah. Well, not Rich. I only met him in Peru. Okay. He uh, he showed up. I met several of them, actually, from the Pleiades. And I, I honestly, Pleiades, I mean, give me a break. Uh, that's what I told him. I just laughed at him. You didn't believe him at the time? No, not at all. What kind of foolishness? Barbara Marciniak had just come out with this book, Bringers of the Dawn. We love that book. We talk about it all the time. So, you know, in Phoenix, when it came out, everything was about Pleiades. Pleiades, this, that, and the other. Channeling Mm -hmm. the Pleiadians. Right. So when Rich says, well, I'm a Pleiadian, it's like, "Uh uh-huh, sure you are. (laughs) Sure you are. But then, you know, later, he gave me enough evidence that I had no question but to believe him. And um, he proved himself over and over and over again, many, many times. Mm -hmm. And the others that I met that were like him, um, they didn't need to prove themselves to me, but they did. And even Kathy got to meet uh, one of the tall uh, black Pleiadians. Um, it, It freaked her out because, you know, bit of a story there too but he had helped us and we met up with him again in Cusco and he wanted to come and say everything worked out all right and so yeah it did he's very happy for us he turned on his heels said goodbye see you around takes about three or four steps and just vanishes Hmm. just flat out evaporates gone Hmm. and Kathy's like chair well, did you see that? Was was that a Pleiadian? Because I'd already told her all the stories. I said, yeah, it was. I wasn't sure at first, but yeah, I'm certain of it now. Wow. Wow. But yeah. as far as being in touch with Zoe and the others, you know, 
I haven't had a reason to be in touch with them. I really haven't put it out there. But one time in the past, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years, Kathy wanted some validation. So I asked Zoe very kindly if he would show up and, you know, he did. And it was a terrific event. And Kathy was by herself and so totally blown away that she had trouble breathing. You know, this gigantic craft just floated the hell right over the top of her. It's about 500 feet long. And they let her see it. You know, I told her the night before I'd asked Zoe if he would show up the following night. So she was outside. And sure as hell he did. And um, so, yeah. You know, the details they left me with were basically... You know, unless you need us for something. I don't need them for anything at the moment. I know, you know, it'd be nice to have that conversation. It's not that I need it. It'd be nice if I had it. And, you know, I, I promised Kathy that, you know, if something happens, then I'll certainly call out to Zoe. There are others I could call on as well. And, you know, I guess we'll see what happens if it gets to that point. But as it stands right now, it would be a gee whiz thing like it was for Kathy. And I told Zoe it was going to be a gee whiz thing. She just wants to know if what I'm telling her is, is true. Yeah. She loves me. She believes me. But, you know, there's always that element of if I had the chance to see it myself, I'd believe it 100%. Right. Mm -hmm. She got that. That's beautiful. You know? So... Yeah. It'd be nice to have that conversation with them. It'd be nice to have, um, you know, another exchange. I don't know that I ever will. I probably will, but I don't know when or how. Maybe you'll call them in for the conference next year. I guess. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I uh, did that for a group up in um, uh, at Giant Rock. Oh yeah, yeah. That that flipped their their wigs. Hmm. Well. You know, I think a lot of people are looking for that moment of, you know, that validation just to like, we talk about this stuff all the time and finally seeing it, you're like, yes, like that happened to me with the Black Triangle Craft, the TR3B. Right. We had, I mean, how many times have we discussed it? And then he I called me so excited. He's like, oh, you're not love just saw it. Yeah. But like, TR3B flew right over. It flew right over my house. And, and it just, it's one of those things where it, it didn't even matter. Like, I don't care who it was or what it was. Like to actually see it with my own eyes, it was it was everything I needed in that moment. Just because, mm. like it, it, even though I knew it was real, now it's real. You know, now yeah. you know, no, yeah. it's real, right? Yeah, without any doubt. And that was that was Kathy's situation too, and being able to mm. see it. Yeah, I think if I'd been out there at the time, it might have been more contact than just the witnessing of it. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, there's I was working on someone who was very ill. And it was another place. But right. she was out there waiting. Mm -hmm. you know, That's great to see it. Well, we're thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, and, thank you so much. And we're really excited to see what presentation you put together for the conference. And we're looking forward to meeting you in person there. And and uh, is, do you want to let our audience know how they can follow you and and what you're up to and where they can find you? Sure. There's a couple of places. Uh, of course, you get the spelling right, but it's jerrywills.com. 
W-I-L-L-S, jerrywills.com. That is the um, the site. Everything to do with health and healing and have personal sessions with me, you know, phone sessions at this point. The world is too big for me to get all over at one time. The other site is jerrywillsshow.com. And that is where I have, like you, I have guests and um, interview people and, you know, do that kind of fun stuff. The only other thing I can say about it is uh, there is also on Facebook, which I'm not a big fan. I think Facebook's a bunch of damn communists, but <laughs> yes, like I, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> like you, like YouTube is. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Oh my gosh, yeah. you have no idea. Yeah, right now, so, very valid, very valid. Yes, very true. But um, Jerry Will show well on on Facebook. It's um, Expeditions TV, or just look up. Just look up Jerry Wills on Facebook. You'll find me. I've got a crazy silver hat on and, uh, you know, a groovy pair of sunglasses. You'll find me easily enough. And for your audience, uh, since it is Christmas time, and this this might date your broadcast, but well, it's good any time of the year, I suppose. Oh, yeah. If you'll go to YouTube, uh, I was in a band with Kathy uh, for a few years, and we, we had some terrific music. Well, one of the songs that I just love is called More Like Christmas Eve. So if you go to YouTube and look up Jeff Bird Project, it's B-Y-R-D, Jeff Bird Project, and More Like Christmas Eve, you'll find it. And that's, you know, the other, I told you my bass guitar was one of my favorite things. Well, I'm playing bass on that. Kathy uh, chimes and jingle bells and congas or whatever she was playing, mm. shakers. But uh, she's on there too. And some other really talented artists. Uh, it was released by Universal Music. Uh, we got well over a million, 100,000 hits in wow. 24 hours right when it was released. That's amazing. So uh, it's a it's a real nice song and really appropriate uh, song for this time of year. So yeah. you might enjoy it. We'll definitely well, check that out. Thank we'll, you. We'll link it in the video, and link we, it. we might even get bold and just play it at the end of the episode too. Right. Go right ahead. You have my permission. Awesome. I own the publishing company. Well, oh, awesome. Well, we got demonetized, and it doesn't yeah. matter anyway. YouTube just demonetized us recently. So. Same. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and we will check that song out and we'll put all of your links in the description below. We're looking forward to meeting you in person. And guys, if you want to come hang out with us in person as well, rebelsofdisclosure.com, grab yourself a ticket, come hang out. Uh, we can't wait to meet all of you guys there. And uh, unless you have anything else to say. No, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure having you on, Jerry. Can't yes. wait for the conference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited. I'll be real jazzed to meet both of you. Same. Yeah, it'll be great. And, and we're excited to meet you and everyone else who showed up. So, and reconnect with all the people who have been the past two years and, and all of our fans that just uh, support us along the way. We can't do it without you. And we love you all. And until next time, have a great evening. Good night. Good night, guys. See ya.
stockings still hang on the mantel There's presents still under the tree And hearts filled with anticipation With all that tomorrow might bring Well, you can't help but get in the spirit No matter how old you might be Cause we all find one thing to believe in Together on Christmas Eve Sings alone. The world finds peace and harmony if only every day could be more like Christmas Eve. Well, the kids are high on that chocolate, and all of the shopping. Oh, friends, stop by with a bottle of wine And toast to the good things to come Life slows down for just one night Everybody gets along, everybody sings along The world finds peace and harmony If only every day could be calendar page to read December 24 and keep the decorations up all year round and pray a little 